Just then his disciples came back. They had gone into town to buy food. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he, Jesus, was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see, come, see. A man who told me all that I ever did, can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to, t to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were, were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the, the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the gospel of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Indeed, glory be to the Lord. Three storylines are woven together in this one account. First, there's the story of the woman at the well. This is verses 27 through 33. She goes as usual, as is her custom, to a public well to draw water. It's odd though, for she goes in the, in, the, in the hottest time of day. And on this particular day, it becomes not only odd what she's doing, but really quite surprising. Because Jesus, who claims to be from God, strikes up a conversation with the Samaritan woman who has and is living an immoral life. Does he not realize what she is? Well, actually, he does. He realizes even more than she realizes. And, we, and she's surprised when he tells her. She has a shameful past with a residue of sin on her heart, as Sam told us about last Sunday when he preached on the first half of this chapter, the conversation between the woman and Jesus. So she is surprised that Jesus knows her shame and yet speaks kindly to her and invites her to become a true worshiper of God. This woman has come to the well thirsty, not only in body, but in soul as well. For she has endured shame for so long 
that she no longer expects any love or respect from other people. She would rather endure the noonday heat than come in the cool of morning or evening and be shamed by others who will be there. But now, having tasted the love of Jesus in just this one conversation with him, this woman is freed. She hurries back into town, bursting with news. She, she is unafraid now of what people think of her. She just wants to tell them about Jesus. Now, like Nathaniel in chapter 1, this woman has been surprised that Jesus knows all she ever did in detail. She asks everyone, can this be the Christ? And she says, come and see, come and see just what Philip had told Nathaniel. In one day, this ashamed, soul-thirsty woman becomes a public witness for Christ. She is freed for evangelism. That's what she's doing. And then, secondly, there's the story of, Je of Jesus' disciples in verses 34 through 38. The disciples probably did not like having to go into town and shop among from Samaritans whom they despise. They returned from the distasteful errand, surprised and confused to find Jesus talking with this Samaritan woman. They wonder, but you notice they don't ask her openly, what do you seek? They wonder but they don't directly ask Jesus, why are you talking with her? They wonder, but ask only to each other among themselves, has anyone brought him something to eat? But Jesus told Nathanael in chapter one that he would see greater things, angels of God ascending and descending on him. And now, in response to his disciples' questions, the things they're wondering about, Jesus tells them, lift up your eyes. Look. Look at this other, new, greater thing than you have ever seen before. And here, the greater thing that he tells them to see is what he calls the harvest. For the people from the town, having believed the woman's, the woman's witness, are coming to meet for himself, for themselves. And by calling it a harvest, Jesus is introducing his disciples to missional living. Not yet by commanding them to go and make disciples of all nations. That command he will give them, but not until later. Right now, what he's giving them is something to see. He gives them the sight of it the sight of people coming to know Jesus. For Jesus says, the fields are white for harvest. The sight of it is to whet their appetite for mission, and oh, may the same sight whet our appetites for the mission as well. The fields are white for harvest, and the harvest is the gathering of fruit for eternal life, he says. 
that is people being saved for eternal life. And here they are being led by, of all people, the immoral woman. She is an evidence that the salvation that Jesus offers is open to anyone who will believe, no matter how immoral their past has been. The Apostle John, who witnessed and wrote this scene, also saw and wrote what we read a few minutes ago in Revelation 14. That was a vision of two ultimate harvests to come when they are fully ripe. First, that, will tell, that tells about a harvest by the Son of Man, who is Jesus, a harvest of the world's believers of all time for eternal life. And the second harvest that's told there is by an angel of the world's wicked, a, a harvest of the world's wicked for God's judgment. Those are two harvests. They are serious, important harvests. And they motivate us for mission. They are among the reasons to do mission. So Richard John Newhouse memorably called Christianity an irrepressibly missionary faith, an irrepressibly missionary faith. But even with those reasons, there's something else, something more that motivates us for mission. Not only the fields being white for harvest, but also who Jesus is. The woman has been asking everyone, can this be the Christ? That means, this, could this be the one anointed by God to come and bring salvation to us? Can this be the savior of the world? And John's gospel will go on to show that that is exactly who Jesus is. This whole book is about that. He is the one sent to make the perfect sacrifice to take away our sin, to defeat death, to take away our shame that, that Sam preached about last Sunday. Thank God that he has sent Jesus and that Jesus has come. I have said to you on past occasions, Moses did not die to pay for our sins. Muhammad did not die to pay for our sins. The Buddha did not die to pay for our sins. They couldn't do that. Only Jesus could and did die to pay for our sins and save us from our sins. And that's why on this Reformation Sunday, we remember these important biblical realities, these theological realities that John announced to you in this order of worship that he prepared about sola scriptura and solus Christus and sola fide and sola gratia and soli deo gloria. Solus Christus is the one primarily in view here in this story of John chapter 4. That Jesus is the only Savior, the only Christ, the one who was sent by God to save us and who now sends us into mission that others may be saved. That's the second storyline here. The third storyline in this passage is verses 39 through 42. It's the story of the townspeople. They ask Jesus to come and stay with them. And he stays two days. Just two days with Jesus. And they tell the woman, we received your witness, but now we have heard for ourselves 
we know now that this is indeed the savior of the world. That was evangelism happening. And this happens among the Samaritans, people who have a deep distrust for the Jews. And the Jews who in turn have deep distrust and hatred of the Samaritans. And oh friends, we are remembering as we've been talking about already this morning that our society is torn by distrust and divisions racially and politically and economically and violence and these terrible things that are on our hearts today. Is there any force at all in the world that can unite us and heal us of these things? In chapter one, in case you're skeptical, in chapter one, remember Nathaniel was skeptical, but after meeting Jesus for himself, he believed. And now here in chapter four, the townspeople have come out to see Jesus for themselves and many believe, John writes. For Jesus came not only to create new persons, new individuals, but to create new communities, a new society, in fact, a whole new world. And for this, his instruments, his witnesses, are people like the woman who, though a failure at love and marriage, now believes in Jesus. Jesus frees sinners and empowers them for earnest, authentic, missional witness. And his new society that he, that he is creating is called the church. We, the Church of Christ here at Grace and Peace, are to be a new society of love for Jesus and therefore love for each other and therefore love for Christ's mission and therefore love for the whole world. Okay, those are the three stories here. Wendell Berry wrote that there are two epidemic illnesses in our time the disintegration of communities and the disintegration of persons. If he is right about that, then this scripture passage is urgently, urgently important for us because this scripture addresses similar epidemic illnesses in that day, that were in that day, but now are in our day. In this scripture, the woman is a picture of disintegration an unfulfilled thirst in her soul spiritually, a history of failure morally, and an isolation socially because of shame, scorn, and fear. But in one day, she is noticeably freed. Furthermore, the local town is disintegrated. People scorn and ostracize a woman who lives among them, and Jews and Samaritans live living just a few miles away from each other. But they distrust, avoid, and hate each other. But in two days, it took a little longer for community. In two days, these Jews and Samaritans are believing in Jesus together. In all three storylines of this passage, this making lives new, whole, is happening as a result of evangelistic witness. Evangelistic mission. The sharing of the gospel of Christ. 
First, Jesus tells the gospel to the woman, then the woman tells the gospel to the townspeople, and later, when the disciples have finally embraced what Jesus has told them about the harvest, they will lead the evangelistic mission of spreading the gospel to the nations of the world. They're going to do that. When you tell people the gospel, friends, when you tell people that you know about Christ, tell them how good the gospel is. Tell them how beautiful the gospel is. Tell them how life-giving the gospel is. This scripture points us to these, these greater things. So grace and peace, we are called to be a church in mission, actively in mission. We are embarking right now on a search for a new pastor who can lead us in mission. In preparation for that when the new pastor is found. In preparation for that, let's not wait for that day when we have that pastor appointed, but rather, let's be entering into mission now and personally. There are several ways I can mention to you that we can be doing that right now. We can pray. That's the first one. Intercede for your family or friends who do not yet believe in Christ. Pray for the nations of the world. Pray for students who are going in December to InterVarsity's Urban Urban Emissions Convention. We can pray. We can give, give financially to support missionaries and the mission. We can go, go to unbelievers that you know, seek them out as local witnesses to them, and go as international missionaries to other countries. We can speak as the woman spoke. She testified to what she had found in Jesus, and we can testify to what we have found in Jesus. And her testimony was powerful. And I can tell you, because I work on college campuses, that's my my work as a missionary now, I can tell you that it's happening on our campuses. Students, Christian students and faculty are, get, are sharing their testimony. They testify to what they have found in Jesus. And other students and other faculty are coming to faith in Christ. God is using the Carver faculty at Washington University that Abram has told you about. And, and other faculty on other campuses and other students on, both, on that campus and others too. People are being drawn to Jesus. I see it happening. We can testify to what we have found. We can explain the gospel clearly to people. We can invite others to come and put their faith in Jesus. And we can help them take those steps of putting their faith in Jesus. And we can do all that speaking with patience and kindness, not not with the hostility that is common today. And we can serve, serve others, do justice, show mercy, and we can love. We can pray, we can give, we can go, we can speak, we can serve, and we can love people. And that is powerful. I recently went to Chicago to help with a memorial service for a dear friend who had died. Several people in the service testified about her life. And all said the same things about Phyllis. 
how she loved God and loved people. Knowing that she was dying, she asked her close friends, some of you here in the congregation, she asked her close friends, pray that I will die well. And she asked for that because for years she had been loving and loving and loving her neighbors because she wanted them to come to Christ and have faith in him. And finally, she wanted the end of her life, that the way she died would be a final witness to them, that they would come to faith by how she had died. She wanted her life and death to draw people to Jesus. Friends, we are church, we are a church of Christ, therefore we're called to be actively engaged in his mission. So now we're gonna pray for a minute and ask him to lead us in that, and then we're going to sing a hymn, but I wanna give you a preview of the hymn that we're going to sing. This hymn speaks of the harvest that Jesus pointed to for his disciples to see. But this hymn will put that harvest in the context, the larger context of his whole life. Verse one, you'll find as we sing it, that Jesus, it speaks of Jesus coming to seek and save the wanderers. In verse two, we'll be singing that he suffered on the cross as savior of the world. In verse three, we will sing that he will win the nations and reap the harvest. In verse four, we will sing that he will return someday. Jesus will return. And I, and I can assure you because it's God's promise that he will return and then, then, then fellow believers, then skies will thrill with gladness and myriad voices of all believers in history will sing and earth to heaven and heaven to earth will answer. And then, at last, at last, at last, the Savior of the world will reign as King forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, until that day that you return, you have given us a mission for us to be doing now. So, Lord, would you enable us for doing it, enable us to stay engaged in the mission, enable us to, to be loving you and loving each other and therefore loving the mission and loving the whole world to whom we can tell the gospel. Oh, Lord, enable us for that. Give power to our own testimonies to other people. Give strength to us to follow you wherever you call us, whether it's here locally or to some other part of the world. Enable us for the mission, Lord. Engage us in it. Fill us with your spirit for that. We ask this of you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand to sing the hymn in your worship bulletin. <laughs>